Ready to build better benefits that maximize employee wellness? Join Infirmary Health and Rx Benefits June 4th ASHRA webinar as they discuss actionable advice for developing pharmacy programs with your pharmacy resources, how to build internal and external partnerships that boost employee wellness, and what pharmacy trends could impact future benefit design for all HR leaders. Register today. To learn more about Rx Benefits, visit employers.rxbenefits.com or click the link in show notes. Asher listeners, welcome to another episode of the Asher Podcast. I'm your co-host, Luke Kerrigan. I'm here with your other wonderful co-host, Bo Bravo. Uh, we have the pleasure of having a gentleman here that we met. Actually, Bo, you and I met him at the Executive Summit in Savannah. And listeners, uh, if you haven't listened to an episode where we talked about it in the past, it's incredible. It's uh, two separate sessions of about 25 healthcare HR executives each. Uh, you get to leave with, dare I say, like lifelong friendships, really talk about issues that you're facing and go in depth. So it's not your typical conference that's flooded with thousands of people where you just have surface level connections, right? And so one of these amazing connections that we made is with our guest today. And this guest actually is in Tempe, Arizona, outside of Phoenix. He uh, worked for a company called the Donor Network of Arizona as the HR director. And Bo, I had just very little experience with how organ donors even works, how the industry works. Obviously, I mean, I know where it comes from and where it goes. All the logistics in the middle, (laughs) very little experience about, right? So, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Kelsey McClendon to the show, who is going to share with us how it all works and a little bit about about his job. Kelsey, welcome. Thanks so much. Thanks, Luke and Bo, for having me. Happy holidays, fellas. And Luke, good to see you again. I uh, appreciate you having me on to talk about uh, myself and also the organ procurement organizations uh, around the country and uh, maybe uh, inform viewers and listeners uh, a little more about um, our industry. Absolutely. So, yeah, start off. Tell us a little bit about uh, your background, uh, you know, what you're doing as HR director, and then let's dive in a little bit more to the Donor Network of Arizona and uh, we'll learn. Yeah, so um, I spent my entire career in human resources, starting out here in Arizona as a student at ASU, got invited to a student-level chapter of SHRM, and then got involved in the uh, HR world right out of college, Uh, worked in multiple different industries, uh, from manufacturing, um, bottled water, high-speed bottled water, transportation. My previous uh, healthcare experience was at Rural Metro Ambulance. I was the Alabama, Louisiana, North Florida, HR generalists. They got moved from Arizona to there, and then they moved me to Ohio to become the central Ohio HR manager for uh, emergency and general transportation and fire services. While okay. there, I attended the Ohio State University and got my master's in HR, ended up working for Nationwide in training and then Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company in Akron uh, for a while in the HR circles. I moved back after shortly after 9-11. Um, the job market kind of dried up. I moved back to Arizona and became uh, an HR leader for a heavy civil construction contractor onto several different industries. And I started with Donor Network of Arizona on November November 2019, so right before the pandemic. So I spent um, first few months kind of assessing uh, our HR function and getting you know where we needed to go. And then the pandemic hit and a lot of effort went into pandemic response. Being in the healthcare field, our folks are in hospitals, um, assessing donors, working on uh, 
donor uh, organ recovery, as well as, you know, office employees and so forth. So a lot of effort went into ensuring the safety of our employees, but also uh, maximizing donation during a difficult time. And then, wow, yeah, it was kind of, it was fun. And, you know, I had no expertise in pandemic response before that, but now I think I could probably write a book. So maybe a a stupid question, but can you, so if you unfortunately, you know, pass away from COVID, are your organs viable for donation? So there is some viability now, but when that first came out, it was such an unknown. Sure. Yeah. Any COVID, any suspected COVID was ruling people out. So that really makes sense. Uh, took a lot of donation out. But when you think about it, there were a lot more, uh, you know, decedents in the COVID era, you know, because of COVID. And so our, we get a call anytime there's a uh, someone that passes away in a hospital, the procurement organization and us included for the state of Arizona gets a call into our referral center. Um, and so we have to assess um, donation viability either for the organ or tissue side um, on every potential um, donor and every the scene that occurs in a hospital. So there was yeah. a lot of activity, um, but lower yield because of that. Also on the tissue side, um, you know, that's really uh, elective surgeries and stuff that went down. Um, and a couple of cases, you know, it was really, we had donor, we had organs and there were just wasn't room in the hospital for transplant activity because of the, it wow. was just inundated with COVID wow. activity. So yeah. we had a couple of instances of transplant centers turning out, turning down organs because of that. But on the bright side, there was some lives saved with lung donation of people that had long COVID and some really uh, strong complications. And I know that I read um, maybe a lung, a double lung recipient um, saved their lives. So there was some also good stories that came out of that um, yeah. from a sure. standpoint of us being able to save some lives because of COVID that were compromised because of COVID. Wow. Kelsiana, and sorry to try. I have so many questions though, because I know very little about this about this industry. Uh, how many on like a typical day or week, however you want to kind of like, what's the volume of calls that you get? So you know, you mentioned someone passes away in the state of Arizona. I'm assuming that they're obviously a donor if they're if you know they're calling you. What's the volume that you're getting? Is it like I, I don't know if it's one per day or a thousand per day? So I'll back into, uh, you know, right now we average about 30 donors a month. 30 a month, okay. Three to four times that, that, you know, we're doing a referral response and probably three to four times that, that we're doing in, hey, someone called in and it's just not a, obviously screened out uh, at the call or not a viable or maybe, you know, potential brain death or potential donor, but they recover or, you know, it doesn't go uh-huh. down, down that road. And so there's a lot of different things that can happen, but it's truly a funnel. And it starts really big. There's a lot of activity for a little yield. And but you have to pursue like every potential responsibility because at the end of that, you know, one donor could save, you know, six, seven, eight, nine lives with organs that are available, not to mission, you know, enhanced lives through tissue donation for things like burn victims or, you know, reconstructive surgeries, you know, cornea transplants for eye surgeries, that kind of thing as well. Wow. I didn't realize that at all. So you'd say it's a, is it like one out of 10, would you say, of the, the referrals that you get actually end up being viable? Or is that, I mean, I'm sure it changes all the time, but. Well, I just use a stat that, you know, about 2% of bra- are brain death. So it has to start with a brain death. And although, yeah. um, you know, there is more on circulatory death and, you know, pursuing um, folks that have circulatory death first, it really starts kind of with a ventilated patient that's not going to make it. Um, it. And so that's 2%, but then it's whittled down from there on you know, basically, you know, based on past medical history, based on, 
you know, age and other factors that whittle down from there, maybe three fourths of a percent, something like that of deaths can end up that. And then deaths that are outside the hospital system, occur in hospice, occur at home, though not viable because they're not on a ventilator at the time. They're not um, going to be able to, be, their organs aren't being perfused in order to continue to be viable post uh, postmortem. Wow. So what, what is, is there like a zero, is there like a zero second time frame? That so you have to be on a ventilator like the the organ in order to harvest the organs because I was even thinking like okay so if like if I were to pass away in a car accident my or- can't I can't donate my organs would not be viable necessarily or it would depend on yeah like if you pass away at the scene probably, yeah at the scene but yeah, it was okay. like a, a head injury and then you're transported to the hospital you're put on a vent um, got it you know that'd be viable we use the term recovery versus harvest just. People don't like to think of their uh, loved ones in front See, as the, far as like plants and so forth. So <laughs> listeners, when you refer to this, don't use this, the, don't make the same mistake I did and say harvest. So thank you for that. Yeah, of yeah. course. Yeah, let's talk Let's talk a little bit more about the industry. So there's 54 uh, organ procurement organizations in the United States. Okay. They're assigned to a geographic area. Um, for us, we cover all organ recoveries in the state of Arizona. And, you know, larger states, California is going to have several you got like one legacy in the LA area um, and others in different San Diego and uh, San Francisco because of the population size. All organ procurement organizations, they do several different things. They promote the registry. If someone's a registered donor, that makes it much more likely that they can be a donor if the situation arises in which that becomes a potential. And when you say registered, does that just mean like for me, it's like on my ID, like when I go to the DMV, I check that box. Is that a registered donor or? Exactly right. If someone okay. can register usually with their DMV or they can register directly like at Donate Life or um, another registration source. For us, we have the DMV and we have a great partnership with them. And that's where the majority of our registrations come from. Um, but we also have Donate Life AZ where people can register directly. One of the things that there's always a higher percentage of the adult population that is for organ donation than is registered. There's probably a you know 20% gap in that. So we're always trying to shore that up and make sure that we are reaching out and make sure people remember to register to be a donor because it makes it so much easier. And then the other thing that a lot of our registration activities is reaching out to um, diverse communities, um, indigenous and Native American population, um, different backgrounds and so forth, where there might be disparate you know, health impacts and so forth that we can shore up. Sometimes there's cultural reasons why they don't register at the rate, but in working with them and partnering with them, there's ways to, you know, honor their culture, honor their um, beliefs, but also make donation happen in a lot of cases. Oh, that's so cool. Talk to me a little bit about, you know, not only the industry, but how big the problem is. Because I imagine that you're not getting everybody the organs that they need, right? Uh, And what percentage, like, what's the gap out there for what is needed and what you can actually provide? Yeah. So actually, when you think about it, it's not that the organ supply is short. It's Kind of the criteria and what's needed to what the transplant centers are compelled to accept or will accept for organs. So on average, kidneys are the most uh, needed organ and have the highest wait list. I don't remember the stat, but on really? average, we were learned from a NASIF NASIF report. Sorry, uh, acronym. But on average, someone that passed away on the waiting list for a kidney has had sixteen kidneys turned down on their behalf. No, and a lot of our efforts because um, of new CMS regulations, holding OPOs, organ procurement organizations like us accountable for not only uh, the recoveries, but also transplants, which we don't do. We have 
to partner with transplant centers is um, seeing if we can work with them to accept more organs. And they're also compelled not to accept organs because they're held accountable for, you know, the the outcomes one year after transplant. And so sometimes if they have had a few um, incidents or what have you, they might be a little more uh, conservative as far as what they accept. So there's a sure. CMS regulations for them are sometimes at odds, but there's always kind of a middle ground that we can find ways to work. And there's transplant centers have a lot of variability around the country on what they will accept. So finding, you know, out, positive outliers and figuring out how they do it. And then, you know, helping our transplant centers that we work with to come along there as well. But yeah, so there's more organs, more organs than needed to reduce the wait list. It's just a matter of, will transplant centers accept the organs that are available? And, you know, will they be penalized if, you know, the outcomes aren't what they're supposed to be? Or is there a way to, to max optimize that? Wow. And like, so in a couple of questions here, a couple of thoughts. So like, what is the, cri- I imagine blood type is a criteria. Actually, I don't even know. I'm not a clinician, but is, a, is, is blood type a criteria? Why? What's the most common reasons why they're getting rejected? And is there, and then after that, is there ever a world where, you know, like if, if I want, if Bo wants to give me a kidney, which I'm sure he'd do, by the way, uh, that I could be like, look, I need it. I, the time is of the essence here. I'm just going to sign a disclaimer that if I if I reject Bo's kidney and I'm not great a year later on, well, you know, I want to try it anyway. Is there a world where that happens? Yeah. So I think uh, I don't know about, a lot about the living donation side. Um, like I said, the, that happens in the hospital system. But there are like situations where there's a potential donor and there's a family member that needs that organ and then they want to designate that. Organ for the family member. So if like we just had a presentation in a town hall here where, and this was very selfless, uh, a man needed a kidney. His son became a potential donor, but he was an older gentleman. So in, instead of him getting the kidney, which he needed, which would have been a good match because as a child, he elected to have those kidneys go somewhere, somewhere else and it saved two 30 year olds. So that was great. Wow. But they could have said, I'd like to get those kidneys. It's a family member. So that could happen. I think it's just a matter of there's a lot of different criteria. HLA typing, um, this, um, you know, something that we do here that is part of it. It's, it's age, it's, uh, disease factors. Um, you know, age sometimes rules people out. So it's a matter of like, yeah. you know, transplant centers always going to want to have the best organ for their patient. That's understandable. But is that kidney, you know, or that organ better than the alternative, better than continued dialysis, better than, you know, a potential fatality. And, but would they have some risk, uh, you know, mitigation if they take a chance on a kidney that's maybe not a perfect kidney, transplant it and, you know, maybe have a negative outcome because they took that risk. But the alternative would have been maybe that person sat on the waiting list or got um, taken off the waiting list and, you know, was deceived uh, anyway. So there's a lot of things that go into it. But um, yeah, I think, you know, waiting for the perfect organ versus taking the better than dialysis kidney. It's kind of what we talk about, you know, your patient's probably going to be improved by taking that kidney. You don't need a 30-year-old kidney for maybe a 70-year-old that needs yeah. a kidney. A 60-year-old kidney would probably work for that, something like that. Are, are children prioritized at all? So children are interesting. We do have, um, you know, sometimes you have donor children, and if it's going to be size is a factor in that. So a child donor for a child recipient. Um, so yes, if their children are on the waiting list as well, and you know, um, 
you know, children organs don't necessarily fit adults and adults children because of the size yeah. factor. So, um, yeah, they think they would be prioritized in the sense that if you had a child donor, then it would most likely go to a child recipient. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Have you registered for ASHRAE's June 4th webinar yet? Attend Optimizing Employee Wellness, How Infirmary Health Aligned HR and Pharmacy for Better Benefits, and Earn a CEU. Wow. Wow, Bo, what are your thoughts, man? There I think go. it's just a, it's a fascinating part of the healthcare industry that I think maybe a lot of people, when they think about getting into healthcare or joining a healthcare organization, that they may not, they may not think of the the organ donation uh, associations and organizations around the country as being part of that. Because um, I'd say in reality, you know, Kelsey, what you're doing in in, in your association, your organization, uh, it, it's very much, it, it's all about uh, saving lives and. Yeah. Um, that's healthcare in general. It's, you know, it's life and death that we're dealing with and, you know, how much, how much closer can you get to that than organ donation when somebody's life truly depends on getting a new organ and you're trying to make those matches, whether it's from a deceased, uh, individual, uh, donor or, um, for those associations that deal with living donors, I mean, just, just incredible. How much purpose, you know, Luke, this makes me think about just HR in general, right? You know, so if you're, if you're listening to this and and you happen to not be in healthcare, you know, I would say seriously consider healthcare HR because the closer aligned you are with an organization that just has a real purpose, it just, it's just, in my opinion, it's so much more rewarding from the work that you do because of the people that you support. Like, I don't, I don't know how, It'd be interesting to talk to somebody in HR that's like working for like Eminem Mars and they're making candy. Like, do you feel, do you feel like you have a purpose, right? Or your organization yeah. has a real purpose, you know, other than selling a product and making money. I, I yeah. Anyway. I can yeah, speak to that too, because I've been in different industries. I've been in for-profit and uh, startups where really just felt like the purpose was to enrich the uh, owner, right? How yeah. can we make more wealth for one person? But here, um, to your point, we take a lot of pride in uh, a mission-driven workforce. And, you know, in surveys, it's 90, 95%. The value that they get out of the employment relationship from the mission alone mm-hmm. is a reason that people come to us. Uh, a lot of our employees yeah. have a connection to donation. Either some are recipients, some had a loved one that became a donor, um, they were exposed to it through hospitals because we depend yeah. on hospital staff. You know, this isn't just us. This is a team effort. Like our CEO our, and our VP of clinical services, amazing donation happens at all. You know, you think about from the DMV registered to a nurse that has to call in the referral to now we got to coordinate with the nursing staff, with the family, um, with the transplant centers. And we're in the middle of all that. And it crosses multiple hands on multiple systems to make one donation happen. So yeah. it really is a, um, it takes a village and uh, it's really fascinating. Um, you know, I talked about the registry, but other aspects of our work is we've got to work with hospitals to develop their internal policies and their policies on how they get referrals to us and yeah. how donation happens when there is a potential donor. And so we have hospital development staff. They're almost like an account manager. Um, plus they're in operations, but they, 
are working on clinical education and, and working with the hospital and policies and getting their referral and donation rates up um, and, you know, working on best practices. A lot of times we have a hospital that has both a trauma center, ICU, if you will, and the transplant program. So we're the liaison between their own departments and, you know, working with kind of both sides of the fence to, to make donation happen. And then we have our Oregon recovery coordinators. They manage the donors. And so a lot of our candidates from that are ICU nurses, critical care nurses that have two, three years of experience. And then they are, if they're interested, they become an entry level candidate for us and they learn donor management from there. Um, and then we have donor family services. They come from a variety of backgrounds. But one of the hardest jobs we have, we're going to talk to a family who just had a loved one that wasn't expected probably to, to be a decedent. And now they're on a ventilator. You know, they're working on brain death testing in this most tragic, uh, you know, situation. Um, and now they're declared brain dead. And then our donor family services talks to the family. If it's a registered donor, hey, your loved one made this decision. It's a very generous thing to do. You know, can you tell us a little more about the family and the medical history to your best of your ability uh, to someone that's not registered? Now, your donor didn't make the dis- your loved one didn't make the decision. What was important in their lives? Um, would donation register, would it resonate with them? Would saving lives be important to them? Is it what's your family uh, like? What's important to your family from a standpoint? Yeah. Would? And a lot of times families, they get a lot of value out of hey, my loved one might have had a tragic accident. It wasn't expected. They might be a 20 or 30-year-old. They're going to have this long life. And this happens and they're not going to go on, but knowing that they saved several lives um, in that generous, either their act or the family's act and uh, deciding to do donation. Yeah. It's incredible. How could you not? Like in my opinion, I mean, I'm sure sure there's a lot of reasons why not, but just to me personally, I mean, I, I can't imagine something more fulfilling coming out of such a tragic incident. Yeah. From our standpoint, yeah, it's incredible. So that's kind of the work we do. And then, you know, the HR side, we're growing. We grew 15 to 20%. We're, you know, about 300 employees. We're going to be at about 400 next year. And so that represents about another 30% growth. And so we're really pushing the envelope on, you know, hiring and we get lots of candidates and then our training capacity. And so one thing I'm working on on a strategic level with our team is exploring healthcare simulation for things like OR setup, organ packaging, donor management, referral response. So we're looking at like uh, high fidelity simulators and um, different aspects of how we can add simulation because our biggest bottleneck on the training side is the number of preceptors and the number of active cases. You have to have an active case to train a new hire or even incumbent on, you know, increasing competencies and proficiency. But we have a simulator where we can emulate that we wouldn't replace active cases or preceptor, but we might be able to supplement that to where we can get them upskilled into the right proficiencies on the SEM and then transfer them to active cases. Their learning curve will be shorter. We'll be focused on making sure that proficiency replicates in the performance environment. We could train more at a time. We have shorter uh, cycle time and we can get more, um, for example, organ recovery coordinators, the general management position out faster. Yeah. And so... One of the biggest things we're facing in the healthcare field is that a lot of the nursing staffs out there that we depend on for the referrals and all that are new. Through COVID, there was a uh, lack of training ability to train new nurses. A lot of nurses and other healthcare professionals left the industry. And so where we might have had more seasoned staff that were familiar with our processes, we're playing a little catch up there. And they're overwhelmed because of cost pressures and so forth. The patient per nurse count is higher. And so we're 
going from a reactive of depending on hospital staff entirely for keeping us apprised of where a potential donor is on, you know, donor brain testing and all that to really being proactive. So we're adding a lot of referral response capacity and the ability to proactively monitor for uh, donors and monitor cases so that we're there at the right time. It's all timing. So you have to be there. If they're going to innovate and take someone off event, you have to be there um, and you have to be prepared to go into, um, you know, the donation recovery, donor uh, recovery activities immediately. It's going to be a long wait. The family doesn't like that and rightfully so. And so we've got to make sure we have right resources at the right time on the hospital floor. That's amazing. Kelsey, this has been so cool. I, I, I My mind is blown for how much I'm learning for this. And uh, thank you for sharing this. It's something that you wouldn't know unless you've dealt with it or you're in the industry. And it's it's one of those things that's so helpful. And I don't know if this makes sense, but so important, but you almost hope that you never have to deal with it. Right? Like yeah. If, it's, it's tragic when it happens. And Yeah. But thank yeah. God you and your, your organization is there. You're doing a great thing. Um, so thank you for the, for the last, uh, little bit of time here. We give you the floor just to say whatever you want, Kelsey. So we could like right now it's the Kelsey podcast. So say whatever you want and then we'll wrap up. (laughs) (laughs) We'll send your donations to Kelsey McClendon.com. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. No, I would just encourage people. This is a very robust industry, uh, facing disruptive regulatory changes. Like you and I talked about regarding the the donor rate, transplant rate, we're being forced ranked into tiers based on 2020, starting in 2024, based on prior year performance. And there's a lot of drive to continuously improve this industry. There's a lot of robust opportunities for professionals that want to make a difference. And so, um, of course, Donor Network of Arizona has opportunities, but all of our OPO colleagues, the 54 OPOs in every state and every major municipality have opportunities and are facing the same thing. So I would encourage everybody to partner with them and whatever role you have, um, you know, consider promoting donation, check out um, job opportunities, things like that. Um, it's, there's really a lot of great opportunities for healthcare business and other professionals in our industry to make a difference. Wow. And if you want um, the uh, industry association, uh, association of organ procurement organizations are www.aopo.org. Or our organization's Donor Network of Arizona, www.dnaz.org to find more about overall opportunities in the industry, learn more about it, and or check out our opportunities as well. Kelsey, thanks so much for joining. Seriously. I mean, you shed some light on something that I think a lot of people don't know a ton about. Uh, so it's fascinating to learn from you. You're always welcome back. So thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to be on and to talk about organ donation and um, anytime that I can be of assistance or add more, um, please, please reach out. I'd glad to join. Well, we'll absolutely take you up on that. Ladies and gentlemen, Asher listeners, you've been listening to Kelsey McClendon, HR director at the Donor Network of Arizona. Um, we'll definitely have you back. Thanks so much. And Asher listeners, that's a wrap. Still listening? Save your seat for the upcoming June 4th ASHRA webinar with Rx Benefits and Infirmary Health today. Questions for the speakers? Send them ahead of time to ashra.edu at ashra.org.